0: What
1: does it mean to be a man?
0: There are still traditional views. My old man, ever since I got married at 19, he basically told me, like, you got to be a man, take care of your wife, and if we have kids, which we do, i got to take care of them too. But less traditional ones are getting real traction.
2: I fit women's wear better than I fit men's wear, so it made sense to just wear women's wear if I could get away with it.
1: And some of the time we find ourselves trying to live up to expectations in ways that don't really fit who we are.
3: And uh, I could not understand why anyone would see putting your head between two other men's buttocks as being the high point of New Zealand culture. I, I was staggered by it. But I never said that, of
1: course. What's clear is that from Me Too to men's groups, the way men are told to see themselves is changing. And whether that's an issue depends on who you talk to but when the word most associated with masculinity these days is toxic, it feels like we should understand the underlying ideas in play that tell us who we are.
3: What does
4: a man look like? Is he tall, strong and well composed? Because I'm none of
1: those. This is He'll Be Right, a six-part podcast series from Stuff and Bird of Paradise Productions about modern masculinity.
3: It's a phrase.
1: I'm John Daniel, I'm 48 years old, white, played rugby pretty seriously, and didn't eat quiche for years because I once saw the cover of a book entitled, Real Men Don't Eat Quiche.
4: And I'm Glenn McConnell, I'm 23, Maori, and being a vegetarian, quiche is a staple for me. When John asked me to work on this podcast, my first thought was, is masculinity an outdated idea altogether? I have friends who don't identify as either a man or woman, increasingly. People are just people.
1: I think it makes a difference whether you're a man or a woman, not just because of the biology, but because of all the cues we pick up from the world we live in. So we come at this from different
4: angles. But what we're trying to find out is what it means to be a man in New Zealand in 2021.
1: I was hoping for some quick bonding across the 25 years that separate us. We had talked about a road trip, but as luck would have it, our first two interviews were in suburban Auckland, not far from the stuff office. So we picked up some sandwiches and sat in the car eating them as we watched the world go by and tried to get a handle on some of the big questions.
4: Like whether a guy with a shiny black ute and grey Graylin is a tradie
1: or just likes the feeling he gets from an SUV. He might be doing landscaping for some outrageously.
4: Oh, yes, a gardener.
1: So it wasn't a road trip, but it was still a bit of a car crash as I tried to talk about my feelings. And my sort of go-to emotions are uh, anger and anxiety. <laughs> and... And I... Happiness? Joy? Uh, yeah, I guess, but... Anyway, enough of that. If I'm running a kind of Eeyore vibe, Glenn has quite a positive outlook.
4: I could get ripped and become a jiu star, or potentially do nothing and be a model.
1: Well, in fairness, that's taken slightly out of context, but he did say it. We'll look at the science, testosterone, sex and gender, later on. We'll also talk to
4: men and women from all over the country about relationships and mental health, expectations and extremism, rites of passage and masculinity in te ao Māori.
1: In this episode, we're looking at bodies, how our identities are wrapped up in them, how New Zealand's history shapes the way we think about ourselves because of them, and how some of those perceptions are shifting as the culture shifts under our feet it
4: would be great to have a an answer to this, to, to what is modern masculinity. I'm a little bit worried that I think going into this, the answer's gonna be something like, there is no right way.
1: But yeah, that's probably true. I think that might be true, but there are probably wrong ways. Yeah, there's definitely wrong ways. So <laughs> let's start by understanding or how we got to where we are.
4: It's a fragile thing A fragile
1: thing. I can't help feeling that a lot of what we hear suggests that traditional masculinity is a problem that needs to be solved. As society evolves, how do we decide what stays and what goes? If we're throwing out all those old ways of thinking, how can we be sure that what we're replacing them with is fit for purpose. That the way we think about being a man actually works for each of us. In late 2019, we were in the gym of Auckland's super rugby franchise, the Blues, getting ready for the flat out physical effort of pre-season training. What's the thing you fear most about pre-season?
0: Oh, probably the running. (laughs) <laughs> it's always hard to get a big rig around if you're um, heavy like me. That's Carl
1: tuanuku husband, father of three boys and all-black prop. In a game made for big men, he's the second heaviest all-black of all time, weighing around 137 kilos. On the field, he looks like a war machine with a moustache.
0: As the all-blacks keep the pressure on, tuanuku and close to the First try in Test Rugby.
4: But just five years ago, he was in a very different place. Age 21, working in security with an infant son, he weighed more than 170 kilos.
0: I was basically struggling to, you know, go to sleep. Like, I could barely, <laughs> tie my shoelaces were felt like getting lightheaded because I couldn't really, you know, breathe bending over and stuff. So that's when I saw the doc in 2014 and just told me it was time to do something about my weight or just building myself up for, you know, uh, heart attack or, yeah, stuff like that. That's a tough moment. Do you remember
1: what you thought at the time?
0: At the time I was, all I was thinking was like, oh, you know, I just had my son the year before, in 2013, so I was just thinking I I didn't want to, you know, die early or not have my uh, wife and son set up if I was to die the next day, so all I was thinking was, um, i got to do something, and I thought rugby was the easiest thing to go back to. Yeah. And so, those first sessions, when you must have started running, like you
1: know, that must have been very hard.
0: Oh yeah, no, it was tough. You know, I was um, running around Bangry on Massey Road and um, just looping around Vine Street, coming back around, and it was, uh, it was tough on the knees. <laughs> I could only run like maybe five, ten minutes straight before like I would just start walking, just because maybe even less, but um, my knees would pretty much give out just because it was, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what it was. It was just throbbing and <laughs> I, I couldn't, couldn't hack it. So I'll do a lot of walking and running, trying to run and then walk. So that's how it started. In
1: 2018, he played in every single test of the All Black season.
0: If that
4: sounds like a fairy tale, in 2019, when he should have been getting ready for the World Cup, he
0: got sick. Do you feel like you got let down by your body? Oh, yeah, a little bit. Um, I kind of, you know, 2018 was a big year for me. I've never played that much rugby pretty much in my life, so but the body's never done anything like that before and probably just wasn't too prepared mentally and physically, so it was um, good to have those 10 weeks off after having that little scare.
1: Talking to Carl, you get the feeling that he'd take almost anything in his stride, but that little scare was viral meningitis. He was rushed to hospital with fluid on the brain, Turns out, war machines are human, after all. Appearances can be misleading.
0: I, I kind of look intimidating, but it's just <laughs> my size and maybe the look on my face at the time. But yeah, I just want people to be themselves around I me. Mean, I try to uh, speak softly around pretty much anyone, or yeah, just smile a lot, just because I don't want people being afraid of me. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that.
1: I'm six foot seven, at about 120 kilos. Though it isn't necessarily the case, in most people's eyes, big equals strong. And while it has its advantages, it also means you're in danger of throwing your weight around. You have to learn how to turn it on and turn it off.
0: Off the field, you know, you definitely feel like your presence is kind of felt, almost heard without saying anything. Like, people look at you and think, oh, you better listen to this guy or um, better watch out for that big guy, like, most of my mates that I um, grew up with in high school, they always come to me, like, after the first couple of years of knowing me, they always tell me how they kind of had a bit of, like, a fear of me, <laughs> but then when they got to know me, they're like, oh, but you're just a big softy. I suppose our, the, the, the way
1: other people see us mm-hmm. is kind of the way we act sometimes too, isn't it? We kind of want to live up to expectations or mm-hmm. you don't want to,
0: let people down almost. Mm. So you kind of feel that you have to be tough. Mm. Yeah, on the field, I right know I definitely uh, feel that kind of you know responsibility on the field. Being a guy of like our size, um, you, you know, you have to make that presence felt on the field, like through defence and attack. Like you don't want your size to be not being used. Like you, you got to use your size on the field. If if you're a big dude, you know, you got to make sure people know you're around. Carl's talking about using his size to
1: make an impact. A long time ago, well, the 1990s, I remember being told that I needed to get fired up and punch guys. Commentators at the time described a fight as just part of the rich tapestry of life. Wait,
4: did you punch guys?
1: A couple. It felt like part of a character you had to get into. And let's face it, there's probably a bit of that still around in the culture. But today, for all the brutality of big hits. Really good players tap into their emotions differently.
0: The game these days, um, it's important to almost be vulnerable around guys that you're going to going to war with. Like you you go on the field, you when you have that vulnerability around guys that you're trying to do well with, it it kind of helps guys have a better understanding of um, what people stand for and stuff. And like, yeah, I, I guess it brings people's performance like better than what you would be if you were like to be extra private when you've got guys around you that really know who you are and stuff. Yeah. It's, uh, I reckon it's really good for team culture. Okay,
1: so the All Blacks are still going to war, but otherwise they're basically hippies now. They do feelings, rainbow laces and selfies with kids. They might be onto something.
4: But if vulnerability is the new Black, it wasn't always like that.
3: I think most New Zealand men of my generation, you know, growing up in the 50s and 60s, aspired to be an all-black. And uh, we aspired to see success through our bodies. Jock Phillips is in
4: his early 70s now. He's still fit and working, but for more than a decade, he was the chief historian. He literally wrote the book on Pākehā masculinity. It was called A
1: Man's Country. Yeah, that was in the 1980s, I think, wasn't it? Still, he never became an all-black, did he? And I felt quite a pressure to make sure
3: that I, you know, I played rugby, I uh, showed that I could tough it out in the back blocks, you know, tramp and sleep in a tent and all those things, precisely because I was interested in intellectual things. I had to show that despite those quote unquote effeminate interests, I nevertheless was a real bloke underneath. Extraordinarily strong pressure.
4: Did you enjoy rugby and did you enjoy drinking spades?
3: I didn't enjoy rugby at all. I found it scary. You know, I found, I found I got hurt. I didn't like getting hurt. And I found myself going into, putting my head into a scrum, one of the strangest experiences I have ever had in my life. And uh, I could not understand why anyone would see Putting your head between two other men's buttocks as being the high point of New Zealand culture, I was staggered by it. But I never said that, of course.
1: I just, I just, you know, buried those thoughts. At this point, my cauliflower ears are burning. I remember being afraid too. But for me, conquering that fear with my mates, it was part of growing up.
4: I dropped rugby as soon as it got serious. But all through primary school, I made my friends play tackle bullrush. Even in the playground, you've got to have some skin in the game.
3: My earliest hero was actually Edmund Hillary. You know, a classic sort of Kiwi bloke with, you know, larger than the poms and knocked the bastard off, you know, in a way that the the, the mother country couldn't do.
1: Being better than the Brits was a big part of how rugby got so embedded in the national psyche. New Zealand sent 10,000 soldiers to South Africa to fight at the turn of the 20th century, The Kiwis fought better than their British counterparts, and the Empire wanted to know why. There was a
3: big uh, investigation because there was a lot of disappointment about the way they'd performed, that they'd expected to defeat the Boers very
1: quickly, and they hadn't. In 1905, the originals were touring Britain, beating the locals at what was then their own game. And this parliamentary investigation occurred
3: at precisely the time when the all-black rugby team was in Britain and uh, the all-black team, as you know, was highly successful and British parliamentarians began to say, well, look, you know, it's not surprising that we're getting bitten in rugby because um, we're a lot of uh, effeminate, effete men and here are these tough blokes come out from New Zealand from the frontier and that's why they were so good in South Africa as well. So this gave New Zealand a, an enormous sense of pride in the achievements of their men.
1: Laying the ground for more than a century of sporting excellence.
3: And a long shadow of social pressure around male identity.
1: And I guess generations of men feeling unhappy about their bodies.
3: I do remember as a young kid, sitting on the beach, looking at my cousins who are off from a farming background, and looked like it you know they were, they were big big biceps and uh tough football playing boys feeling an acute sense of failure and embarrassment and I, I remember putting my legs on a chair trying to flesh out the muscles underneath to make my legs look a little bit uh, more robust than they actually were cute sense of shame about the fact that I wasn't quite the heroic Kiwi bloke of muscular proportions which I aspired to be. So yeah, I think uh, male identity in New Zealand has been conceived through the body and it was quite difficult for people in our generation who are short or who are fat or who are particularly thin to comfortably think of themselves as uh Kiwi blokes at ease with being a Kiwi bloke.
4: So that's a theory. Strong, imposing, muscular men. Men who aren't afraid to put their bodies on the line, climb a mountain and pummel each other on the field.
1: Yeah, let's wrap it up here. That's the ideal man in New Zealand. But of course, we're not all like that.
2: My mum is Vietnamese and they met in Cambodia and had a bar together for like 10 years or so. And I grew up in Cambodia, so surrounded by women. So I was very like, I'm very spiritual and in touch with my feminine side. And it took my dad like a little while to gauge through that and be like, OK, so he's not normal or like I'm saying that in quotations or just not straight. I was very different from an early age.
4: Rob Tennant is a model, and despite being pushed through college to follow more traditional paths, he now takes advantage of his slender frame to model both men's and women's clothes. I like
2: to play with how people perceive me. And why do you want to do that? Just because it starts a conversation, because if someone did turn around and say something, I guarantee it would probably turn into some form of homophobia and then or just misogyny if it came down to it, if they were confused with my gender. A lot of people have been confused about my gender and that's fine because it starts a conversation.
4: When we meet Robert at his house, he's confident, goes in straight for a hug with us
1: reporters he's never met. Yeah, that was interesting, wasn't it? It was kind of like a a weirdo, a challenge done in a beautiful, open-hearted way, but still saying, this is who I am, you're on my patch, and these are my terms.
4: Robert's only 21, but he has this really settled sense of himself. It seems to come from grappling with the identity he gets from his body.
1: To begin with, he tried to fit in at his new school.
2: I dealt with that with a lot of internalised racism and internalised homophobia, so I would crack those racist jokes because I was afraid that they would say it about me so I was like, "Oh, maybe I'll, I'll bring myself down so that no one else can do it. That was my defence mechanism and I did the same about being gay. I would be homophobic to the other out kids until I realised at like 16 that that wasn't the type of toxicness that I wanted to spread. While he was dealing with all this,
4: Robert was sexually assaulted.
2: My body has gone through huge changes. I gained a lot of weight when I was coming out and dealing with all of that in high school. I gained a lot of weight and got quite like sad. And then I went through assault, which then I dropped 20 kgs in five months. Like I didn't know why it happened at the time, but after going through therapy, it was because Something I couldn't control happened to me, so then I chose to control something that I could change, which was my eating, and it happens to a lot of people that go through trauma.
4: He published a book at 19 about coming back to sex after being assaulted, but being in the arena of physical desire still has its challenges.
2: Even inside the community, it's a lot of, a lot of gay men are very transphobic and will say horrible things and very misogynistic, and racist. I've dealt with a lot of racism of people being like, I'm not into Asians or like, I don't date Asians or I don't meet Asians or Indians or blacks. And it's like this very whitewashed. And then that brainwashes these little kids of color into thinking that, oh, they're not as valuable as these white gays.
1: It's a little surprising that even the gay community who I guess I would have imagined was super inclusive, has some people feeling marginalised on the basis of what they look like.
4: Rob's hoping to diversify our views on beauty. He wants all sorts of different bodies up on the catwalk.
1: It's very on trend at the moment for celebrities to talk vaguely about body positivity.
4: But I get a sense Robert genuinely thinks his industry can make a change.
1: Traditionally models are aspirational, beautiful, you know, they're they're kind of the most aesthetically pleasing amongst us. So you've been, you're in that sort of elite category of of looks really Mm -hmm.
2: that's what I think I'm doing differently is I don't fit those traditional I don't fit in that box I'm not six foot I'm not chiseled I'm not white but if there was a day where we weren't a trend and that people would just book diversely that would be the goal like I think now it's trendy but hopefully this trend becomes normal because more people want to just be seen like i think if a little vietnamese kid saw me he could be like oh wow like maybe i could do that or whatever
4: so would you say
2: you're comfortable with your body now and i'm more comfortable definitely i'm getting there there are parts that i'm i think we all want to change but i'm generally very happy with the skin that i'm in now
1: Being happy with your own body is one thing. How others feel about it is something else. And now we can shop around online. The people we're hoping to attract make a snap decision. For the uninitiated, that is the sound of a Tinder match.
4: Sarah M. Powell-Jones is a self-proclaimed Tinder expert. She writes a blog sharing her Tinder horror stories, which was recently made into a play.
1: We caught up with her to find out what exactly women look for. And why are there so many gym selfies online? You see a range of people at the gym though. I mean, just because you go to the gym doesn't mean you're hot or you have a hot body.
5: Yeah, no, definitely. I think, you know, people at the gym, they are all working on themselves and that's a really positive aspect of someone's life um, that you can immediately have insight into if they post it on their Tinder profile. So you see that and you go, huh, interesting, you like going to the gym.
1: If you come up with a formula as such?
5: I mean, I think there are things like if I was to get out my Tinder right now and we would have a look, I would be able to be like, I know that's not going to work for me because of this photo or I know this is not going to work we for me. Can Tinder up? Yeah, of course we can. Two seconds. I haven't been on Tinder in a few days. So the algorithm has probably picked up that I haven't been on Tinder in a few days and is like, I will give you the cream of the crop. Yeah.
1: So this is premium man flesh here. Potentially. I have to say, I find algorithms terrifying. Social media didn't invent body image, but it seems to be amplifying it, manipulating us into ways of thinking that we don't fully understand, or perhaps telling us uncomfortable truths that we'd rather not hear. It's hard to tell.
4: Yeah, Siren says she and her friends prefer a guy who smiles and loves animals, although not all animals, not the guy posing next to a chained up, sedated tiger. He gets a no.
1: Yeah, but the algorithm suggests that might not be the full picture.
5: First thing to note, this man is not wearing a shirt. He's quite buff.
1: It's fair to say that the guy has a six-pack.
5: So you don't know how old he is, which means he's a premium user. Loves to snowboard. Okay, so he loves the outdoors. Great. Ah. Loves, loves a cat, but Interesting. Now, super interesting is the fact that Tinder showed us his first photo of him not in a shirt. As soon as I click on the profile, Tinder rearranges them to what he set them out to be. And his first actual photo was him with a cat.
4: Because you said that wins every time, doesn't it?
5: That's what he thinks is winning. But the algorithms within Tinder have said people swipe yes to you when you're shirtless.
4: I don't know if we should feel dispirited by that. Yeah, I find it kind of depressing. Before we got on to Tinder, Saren was talking about how important the bio is, that she'll swipe right to a man with a good story.
1: Right, so who they are, or at least what they can say about themselves in three lines, rather than just what they look like.
4: After all this talk about diversity and strength being as mental as it is physical, The damned Tinder algorithm tells us a shirtless six-pack wins the
1: game. But Tinder is all about window shopping, and so it's for a self-selecting crowd of window shoppers. It's not surprising it's playing up to them. And it's not really news that physical attraction is a thing.
4: Yeah, I guess. The other interesting thing about Tinder was the way men use props.
1: Not just gym photos, but suits, boats and cars. Yeah, guys holding on to fish. All these kinds of extensions of the body to signal success to a potential mate
4: or even just your mates. Carl is a particularly secure guy, but he's conscious that the importance of appearance is a challenge for his sons. My oldest
0: boy, he's becoming more like, worried about what people think of him. Well, not really, but like, I can see it happening. Like, um, he's talking about, you know, his hair or whatever, and I'm just thinking, man, I didn't even have gel when I was a kid. I had, like, (laughs) terrible haircuts, but now seeing him growing up in this time and, like, where everyone cares so much about what they look like and what they're doing, it it is kind of worrying, but um, as long as he he knows that at, at home he's got, like, a good support base through me and my wife and, like, whatever he does in life will always, you know, have his back. Yeah, but social pressures have always been there. That's what Jock
1: was saying all groups of men have anxieties and
3: uh, you know male culture is quite a competitive and ribbing sort of culture so individuals have anxieties about their own male identity and societies at large often have anxieties about male culture because male culture is so associated with um, achievement with victory, whether in war or sport.
4: Victory.
1: Men feel a need to show off. Yeah, but have you already forgotten driving around with Carl? There's a world-class rugby player showing up to training in a 25-year-old Toyota Corona. People ask him if there's something wrong, if that's actually his car. He just laughs. It's not something that seems to matter to him. True,
4: and Rob is the same,
2: but in a different way. I was supposed to be playing rugby. So I tried that out and I hated it and I wasn't going to force myself to do something I didn't like. I was very stubborn. I still am. So I just went on my own path and never really paid much attention to it.
4: Yeah, you know that book about how real men don't eat quiche? Apparently the last line, like the entire point of the book, is that real men do eat quiche because they don't care what other people think.
1: Okay, so... You're saying to me that I've been outmanned not just by an all-black prop, but by a 21-year-old model who wears dresses and, and you?
4: Yeah, pretty much.
1: Even your quiche. You're such an edgelord. Look, Glenn, it was the 80s. The cultural scene was pretty raw for kids. I'm like the bastard son of Buck Shelford and David Hasselhoff.
4: Uh, David Hasselhoff, the guy from Baywatch?
1: Night Rider, Glenn. Michael Knight had a car that talked... I mean, he was nothing without the car, but it was a cool car. Would have made a great Tinder profile, actually.
4: It's a thing. A thing. He'll Be Right is a Stuff and Bird of Paradise production. It was written and produced by me, Glenn McConnell, and John Daniel. Noel McCarthy was the associate producer... The music's from Anthony Tonnen and sound design and editing by Andre Upston.
1: Carol Hirschfeld is the commissioning editor for Stuff, and the executive producer was Patrick Crudson. This series was made possible by funding from New Zealand On Air.
4: For more from this series, go to stuff.co.nz forward slash That's H E L L B right. There, you can listen to all the episodes and find links for subscribing on your favourite podcast app, plus a series of essays. Also, Snapchat guy Tom Sainsbury has made a brilliant series of short videos about modern masculinity. They're all on the website too.